Welcome to Flippany, the podcast for cryptocurrency traders and investors. I'm your host, Clay Collins. Each week, we discuss the cryptocurrency economy, new investment strategies for maximizing returns, and stories from the front lines of financial disruption. Go to Flippany.com to join our newsletter for cryptocurrency investors and find out why this podcast is called Flippany. Clay Collins is the CEO of Nomics. All opinions expressed by Clay and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Nomics or any other company. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Today's episode is our twice per month news roundtable. The goal of these roundtable episodes is to provide long form commentary and context around the most important news events for cryptocurrency investors. And with each roundtable, I'm joined by a cryptocurrency journalist, trader, or analyst I respect. So today, my co-host is Taylor Pearson, who recently went on an epic tweet storm about people's understanding of blockchain and this tweet storm got retweeted about 900 times. I'll link to it in the show notes. We discuss CME Group's plans to offer Bitcoin futures on December 18th, Google Advanced Protection, and how cryptocurrency holders should use this to upgrade their security, especially since it's free. We also talk about the fact that Coinbase is now adding 1.2 million new users per month and the implications for the cryptocurrency economy, and how there are now more than 120 hedge funds focused solely on Bitcoin and digital currencies. Finally, we close out this episode by talking about institutional crypto economics. Please enjoy our very first news roundtable for cryptocurrency investors. So I'm joined today by Taylor Pearson. Taylor, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in cryptocurrencies? Yeah, so my background is mostly digital marketing. I really got into cryptocurrency. I was living in Southeast Asia for a couple of years, and I met a couple of these guys that you might call like kind of the sovereign freedom crowd. So interested in this idea of you think about diversifying across asset classes, and they were talking about diversifying across different nation states or different countries. So they latched onto the Bitcoin thing, I think, very early because it was this idea of an asset that was trusted, but where you didn't have to have any sort of, at least in theory, any sort of government entity getting involved. So that was kind of like my introduction. To be honest at the time, this was maybe like 2012. I had no idea what they were talking about. I really didn't. It didn't compute for me, but I kind of kept an eye on it. And then maybe late 2015, early 2016, I really started to get interested. I started to be able to wrap my head around it. I started investing a little bit, and then it just kind of ramped up from there. I think the the whole kind of decentralized disintermediation, all the buzzwords and stuff, that was kind of my buzzword bingo that it just set off. I was like, oh, that stuff is cool. And I wanted to learn more about it. Very cool. And if you're willing to share this, are you making more right now through your daily work or through cryptocurrency investing, whether passive or active? So I'm primarily a passive investor. Or I try to be as passive as possible. And uh, I'll, I'll probably make more through cryptocurrency investing in 2017 than my daily business, you know, assuming this the market stays or, or continues going where it has gone over the course of the year. So provided that there isn't a big dip. <laughs> yeah, if it goes down by 80%, that will change. Okay, so the first article that we'll be discussing from Crypto Investor Weekly is article number one, which is our pick of the week. Bitcoin surges after world's biggest exchange announces plans for future. So the big news here is that CME Group 
the world's largest exchange, has announced that they're going to put a financial wrapper around Bitcoin in the form of Bitcoin futures. Hey, time out. This is Clay cutting myself off here to let you know that if you want more information about Bitcoin futures and Bitcoin futures exchanges and their impact on the market and how they work, then episode three with Aaron Brown is for you. In fact, episode three is entirely about the Bitcoin derivative exchanges that are at play right now or in the works. Check it out. Okay, back to the roundtable with Taylor. What did you make of this? I think sort of similar, like the word that came to my mind was professionalization of Bitcoin, right? I've, I'm in New York. I've talked to the people I talk to here in the financial space. Kind of the, the consensus I get is, you know, this is really interesting. And oftentimes, at least some of the, the younger, the more tech-oriented guys and girls are personally own some, but they don't have a way that they can invest in it, you know, through their day jobs or through the institutional money they're managing, just because it, it's, uh, it's not professionalized. It's uh, usually the words I hear are, reputational risk and custodial risk. And it seems like this could potentially solve, it solves a big part of the custodial risk and probably some of the reputational risk as well to have kind of an established, well-known name that you're investing with. Both of those risks are those both forms of counterparty risk? Definitely the custodial risk. I'm not sure. I guess the, the reputational risk, at least as I understand it, is more if this investment goes south and your LPs call you and say, you know, why did you buy this? You have to be able to have, you know, there's certain kinds of things you need to point them to, which is typically like, you know, research papers of a certain quality that you can say, hey, look, you know, we did our due diligence on this and we looked at the research and we we did the sharp ratio and, you know, we have this kind of data points on it. And based on that, you know, we made the investment decision, whereas it's like, you know, I read something on the internet, and I thought it was cool. It doesn't doesn't really stand up as a from a reputational perspective. What I find most interesting about this is kind of this path that assets take from having no Wall Street wrapper around them to getting to the point where perhaps they have an ETF. Yo, I'm going to tell you what an ETF is. If you don't know what an ETF is, it stands for Exchange Traded Fund. An ETF usually tracks an index, a commodity, or a basket of assets like an index fund does. What's cool about ETFs is that they can be traded like a common stock on a stock exchange, like Apple or Nike. So when Bitcoin has an ETF, it means that anyone with a Schwab account or a Scott Trade account or whatever, can buy Bitcoin in a pretty frictionless way without having to worry about how to store it. So just like you might go onto an exchange and purchase shares of Nike, I believe it's NKE, you could also go onto an exchange and buy shares of Bitcoin, perhaps with the ticker symbol BTC. It's predicted that the advent of a Bitcoin ETF will lead to huge demand and buying action from institutional investors with billions of funds under management. So if you look at gold, for example, gold didn't have an ETF until the 80s or the 90s. It certainly wasn't before the 80s. And gold as an asset has been around for a long time. So it's actually not that surprising that we don't have a Bitcoin ETF yet. But before the Bitcoin ETF came on the scene, it was traded in these kind of commodity derivatives markets. So I'm hoping that <laughs> these kind of differing agendas between the, the CFTC and the SEC 
that sort of the SEC is perhaps looking for a year or two of favorable action here in derivatives markets prior to putting their stamp of approval as the SEC, right? I think, you know, the SEC wants to make sure pension funds and grandmothers with their retirements aren't going to to lose those things. But it's, it's a very different set of standards for the, the CFTC, which just wants to make sure that everyone knows the rules, that everyone's going to play fairly, and that everything's kind of spelled out, all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. So this is a really good sign. It is. And I think the, the gold ETF was actually more recent. I think the first gold ETF, I just looked it up, was 2003. Oh, wow. Very, very recently. It was cool to see the price surge after this announcement. It's funny. It, I feel like we are living in opposite land, you know, with the first Bitcoin gold fork prices started to plummet. And then everyone saw that these forks yielded dividends. <laughs> And now the the announcement of a fork almost seems to be driving up the Bitcoin price and convincing people to move resources out of alt- altcoins into Bitcoin in order to be able to, you know, to secure that extra dividend. It'll be interesting to see whether that sort of analogy of when I hear people explaining it to other people, they kind of say, yeah, it's like a, a spinoff, you know, where you get the new stock in the the spinoff company. And, you know, it's just this dividend, right, that comes out. And I'll be interested to see whether that holds or not going forward or whether that's kind of just been, you know, there haven't been, we don't have that much data on these forks. You have maybe Ethereum Classic, Bitcoin Cash, and Bitcoin Gold. Are really, it's really only three data points for the whole industry. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not that continues or if there's, you know, sometimes the market goes the other direction after the fork. So I think earlier hedging action in the cryptocurrency space was usually in and out of fiat, right? So if you were concerned about what was happening in the cryptocurrency space, you might move a chunk of change into fiat. And then when you thought things were going to turn up again, you'd move it back into crypto. And I think as these markets have gone up so much, everyone is essentially, maybe they've taken their gains off the table and now they're playing with the house's money, but they still have a lot of it. So I think people probably earlier this year or, you know, end of 2016 were hedging not back into fiat, but hedging into other altcoins. And with all these forks happening in Bitcoin, it's almost like the safest route is to have your money in Bitcoin because it saves you from having to hedge in and out of these alts. You're essentially hedging into every single possible fork of Bitcoin (laughs) and making sure that regardless of the outcome with Bitcoin, you at least have a stake in it. It's just funny how human behavior is playing out in this space. Did, Did you find yourself... In early 2017, end of 2016, were you, you know, when there was this big altcoin surge, did you find yourself mostly hedging into fiat or hedging into other cryptos? So I was mostly hedging into other cryptos as well, some into fiat, but mostly, I mean, a lot of my calculus was tax related. You know, if you transferred into another coin, there's probably less, there's, as my understanding at least, is there's less tax implications or no tax implications, whereas converting it into fiat, then you, that's a, a taxable event. And you have to report that to the IRS. So the second story of the week is Google has announced what they're calling advanced protection for politicians, journalists, celebrities, and of course, cryptocurrency hodlers, as they say. 
the news here is there have been a number of hacks. Basically, you know, if you announce on Twitter that you are a Bitcoin holder, there have been a few stories of this basically making you a target for someone, say, sending you a phishing email, trying to get, say, your, you know, your Coinbase login or your login to one of these exchanges. And, you know, because there's in many cases no one to call or you can't get the customer support fast enough, you know, you can just have these coins stolen. So Google Advanced Protection is, I guess my understanding is kind of like a beefed up two-factor authentication which makes it a lot harder for those sorts of attacks to happen. The scariest instances of these hacks, in my view, are the two-factor related ones where a phone number is essentially hijacked. So there have been a couple instances where hackers have called Verizon with a name and a phone number and through social engineering you know, convinced Verizon or another telco to move the telephone number to a new SIM card. And that allows the holder of that SIM card to receive the second factor SMS verification. So in those instances, you can request a a password reset, you know, kind of say you don't have access to the email address anymore. And you can use that second factor to essentially hijack someone's email account. And once you have the email account, you can request a Coinbase password reset, reset your password there. And now you have access to all of that person's funds on a centralized exchange. So what Google is trying to do is get more people off of SMS-based second factor verification and using these hardware security keys that are FIDO U2F compliant. And what's cool about these hardware security keys is that you actually control the private keys. So with traditional second factor authentication, even if you're using something like Google Authenticator, you know, in that case, Google's servers have the private key and you have the private key, and you both use the time to hash a public key that Google can then verify, right? But with these hardware devices, Google doesn't even store the private keys. So it's the most secure form of account security that exists today. And when you sign up for this program, and I I did it, you basically buy two keys. You buy a USB key that you can use on your desktop, to authenticate when you sign in and you get a NFC, which I believe stands for near field communications key, which can be used on your cell phone to sign in. So the only way for someone to hack your account if you're in this Google advanced protection program is to get physical possession of one of these keys. And if you're going to do that, there's lots of other things that you can do involving weapons and guns and such to steal a lot more. So it's really cool that Google is doing this. And it's really cool that they're doing this at no extra charge. And for everyone, it's it's not just for celebrities and politicians and high net worth individuals. It's It's anyone who fears getting hacked, right? But frankly, this is something that I wish a number of politicians, including like John Podesta and the Clinton campaign, <laughs> and I don't know, perhaps President Trump on all his private email servers. I, I wish everyone had this because I, I think it would make the world a, a much safer place. 
Taylor, have you signed up for this? Have you have you used this? I have not yet. I'm planning on doing it. I actually just ordered a Fido key uh, a couple of weeks ago before I heard about this announcement. But I think this will make me get on it. And I didn't realize what you said. I thought they had to get both your email login and your Verizon or your phone number, that SIM transfer. I thought there was two kind of two steps to it, but I didn't realize that you could. It's just really just one deceit or one con, if you will, as soon as they get one customer support person to switch the SIM card is connected to, they have everything, which is, yeah, it's fairly terrifying. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've been recommending that everyone with a Google account do is remove your phone number. Like wherever you go for email, they should not have your phone number in any way, shape or form, because if your phone number is being used as a second factor, you're vulnerable. So when I heard about some of these hacks, I went into every Google account I had and, and made sure that Google wouldn't even know how to do an account reset with my phone number. I recommend that everyone do this. What's cool about advanced protection, I went through this, is when you sign up, they log you out of every single place where you've logged in with a Google account. So you have to re-authenticate on every single device and they cut off access to your Google account from third-party apps that don't authenticate through your key and even like non-trusted third-party apps. And I believe that they restrict the kind of access that third-party apps have access to after you've signed up for this. So maybe they'll get access to your contacts or account verification, but they can't actually read emails, right? Like that's the kind of thing this program does. It's really a godsend, I think, to cryptocurrency hodlers, especially if you have anything at all in a centralized exchange. But I recommend that everyone listening to this go and purchase the hardware keys that are required to sign up. Our third article here, it's actually a link to a tweet, is about Coinbase having added... 1.2 million new users last month. And recently they had a 100,000 new user day. I find this to be incredibly encouraging. To me, it means that private individuals are getting access to this asset class largely in advance of institutional investors. So Wall Street and hedge funds really haven't gotten into this space. Maybe they're allocating like less than 1% or private individuals have bought some with their personal wealth. But by and large, institutions have not gotten into this in a big way. And that's rare. Like most advanced financial instruments or a lot of the really interesting things in terms of financial products are usually available first to the Wall Street elite And then they become available to individual investors through ETFs, through index funds, through sort of these consumerized products. And I love the fact that Bitcoin in particular is getting pretty wide and diversified distribution, you know, before institutional money gets in. So this to me is perhaps the best predictor of the health of the space. Actually, I hadn't thought about it from that angle, but that's true. I got very interested in the Argentina 
crisis that happened in 2001. And the story there was, yeah, very similar, right? Which is kind of all the, all the people that were in the know got their money out in time. And it was sort of like the broad, you know, the average retail investor that ended up getting screwed by the system. Whereas, yeah, the, the inverse almost seems to be true here. It's actually almost entirely kind of smaller retail investors or relatively smaller retail investors that are getting in. And, and all that institutional money is still on the sidelines or overwhelmingly on the sidelines. When I think about who is going to lose out as wealth starts flowing from fiat currencies into cryptocurrencies, which I do believe will happen, I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist, but I am a cryptocurrency maximalist, then I do believe that the majority of the world's wealth will eventually move into crypto assets. I might be wrong, but that is what I believe. And when I think about who the losers are going to be in that, it's it's not going to be the wealthy in the United States. And it's probably not going to be people in poorer countries who have always had unstable fiat currencies, people in Argentina, people in Zimbabwe, people in Venezuela, etc. right? Like they're in many ways, the early adopters for this technology. I believe it's going to be the lower middle class and poor people in the United States who have this faith in their state currency because it has been so stable for so long, I'm afraid they're going to be the last entrance. And that kind of worries me, right? So I, I think a lot about this crypto divide. There was a lot of talk about the digital divide when the internet was springing up prior to mass access through cell phones and mobile devices. I think a similar crypto divide is going to develop. And my fear is that the people on the wrong side of that are going to be the poor in developed countries. That's interesting. Yeah, I've heard the term crypto bourgeoisie thrown around a couple times. But you know, even going back further than just the internet, right, when you have new technologies arise, you often see this kind of divergence between, you know, if the technology proves to be successful, the people that adopt it early get, you know, an, an outsized portion of the benefits like in the same way there was sort of like an emerging bourgeoisie class of merchants in the middle ages or you know late middle ages going into kind of the enlightenment maybe there's a similar kind of like crypto bourgeoisie in the same way there's just you know like kind of an internet bourgeoisie if you will forming it's good to see these tokens being distributed you know people who own a fourth of a bitcoin half of a bitcoin an eighth of a bitcoin i like seeing this asset spread out it's important to remember that unlike a company where someone could conceivably come in and buy and often does acquire a hundred percent of a company right they you know through a maybe a private equity acquisition or just an all out purchase of the equity of a company, if that happened with something like Bitcoin, it would essentially be worth nothing if you bought all of Bitcoin now the value of Bitcoin goes to zero, so the the value of these cryptocurrency increases when there's diversified ownership. I think the other story that's interesting there for me too is how much is driving interest in the new technology. I mean, frankly, that's that's sort of what happened to me, right? I, I bought some and it started going up and I go, man, you know, I should really start reading more about this stuff because all of a sudden, you know, it was an immaterial amount of money and as the, you know, it becomes more and more material. They're like, you know, I should really understand what it is that I own and how it works. I think, you know, that people talk about the bubble, but you know, the the good aspect of financial bubbles is that, you know, in the long run, they tend to drive innovation, they tend to drive interest in the space. And so I think, you know, as Coinbase, sort of as the 
the marquee on-ramp for from fiat to cryptocurrency continues to grow, you know, you're going to see more and more you know, research and kind of like long-term investment into this space. Agreed. So our fourth story is there are now more than 120 hedge funds focused solely on Bitcoin and other digital currencies. The number right now in terms of assets under management, CNBC is saying $2.3 billion. So this is kind of, you know, we were talking about not a lot of institutional money has come into the space. This seems to be kind of the primary vehicle for how that institutional money is coming in and obviously has ramped up a lot this year. Most of those firms are, you know, at most, I think, a couple of years old. Uh, and I think the, I would guess the majority of them probably started in the last 12 months. I think there's a couple interesting things about this. The first is that from my informal research, most of the investors in these hedge funds are either private high net worth individuals, family offices, and in some cases, traditional VC. So we've got Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square Ventures making some high profile investments in a few of these crypto hedge funds. So that that's the first thing is that I don't know that I would classify any of these as real institutional money. I think the second thing to point out here is that, again, this is informal research. I, I do not have survey data on this, but from looking at many of these hedge funds, most of them have been started by people that don't have traditional hedge fund management background. These are kind of crypto native people or people who got interested in finance because they were interested in cryptocurrencies. And I think that's a really fascinating trend. I was talking to a liquidity provider today or a market maker who got into the business because they understood the Ethereum ecosystem. So they're looking to provide liquidity for the Ethereum ecosystem and many of these hedge fund managers who I've spoken to, they don't have this long background in hedge funds. They're doing this because, first and foremost, because they're crypto proponents. I think the third thing that's worth noting about this uptick in crypto hedge funds is that the vast majority of crypto hedge funds aren't being accounted for here. Yeah, I agree with your point on institutional money. I was not using that term accurately that from what who i've heard from and, and research i've done that the kind of vc high net worth individuals and, and family offices do seem to be the main source of funding for these hedge funds and i think your your second point goes back to a bit to what you said earlier that a lot of this money is not from traditional financial types or people highly invest in the traditional infrastructure it's sort of it's more silicon valley than wall street or more kind of uh, geeks than jocks if you will, that that's typically is where uh, the people that are managing these funds and, and usually the people, and I assume, I, mean, I guess I assume to some extent the people investing in them, they're the ones that kind of understand the technology enough to feel comfortable putting their money in it, where it's a little bit more orthogonal, you know, come, it's a little bit less understandable or less transparent as how this stuff works if you're from a, a strong traditional finance background. So our final article is not one that was referenced in the last issue of Crypto Investor Weekly, but one that is going to be in the forthcoming issue. And it's a Medium article entitled The Blockchain Economy, A Beginner's Guide to Institutional Crypto Economics. How's that for a mouthful? And this article 
was brought to my attention by you, Taylor. Can you tell us a little bit about the writers behind this article and what you find most interesting about this? Yeah, so it's from the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub, which is from a university in Melbourne, Australia, that has set up kind of this blockchain research and is coming at it from a bit of a more traditional economics background as opposed to, you know, kind of finance trading. And what was really interesting to me, you know, we always talk about you're trying to explain someone, someone asks you what Bitcoin is or what Ethereum is or what cryptocurrency is, and you try to find analogies to things they understand. So, you know, Bitcoin is digital gold, and you can kind of explain that it's a store of value, but it's got some advantages over gold, like it's a little bit easier, or it's a lot easier to transfer, it's potentially easier to store, it's more highly divisible, et cetera. But those analogies can sometimes be misleading. So in the case of the internet, right, we kind of tend to project our current understanding of how an industry works and just assume that this new technology is going to be, you know, like that, but just more of it. So, you know, you used to read your Wall Street Journal by opening up the newspaper and the internet came along. It was kind of like, oh, cool. Now we can read all the same publications we already like, but they'll be, you know, I just open a browser and I can read them online. And of course, kind of like the real story of media on the internet ended up being social media, right? It was this totally new business model that was facilitated by the internet that all of a sudden, you know, Facebook is the largest media company in the world and it has no editorial team. It has no goods. It doesn't have any cost of goods, really. It doesn't produce anything itself. It's just a platform for people interacting. So I think thinking about those sorts of possibilities with the blockchain, you know, we talk about what's going to be possible and our sort of tendency is to think of it in terms of, you know, oh, this is, you know, digital gold. It's going to be just like gold, but it's going to be, you know, on the blockchain or it's, it's going to be digital. And so one of the ideas from this article was that a better analogy for the blockchain is actually mechanical time. So a lot of historians think that mechanical time was such a big deal because it, all of a sudden, for the first time in history, you could accurately measure and so put into a contract how much time you're giving to someone else, right? So we think about you know the eight-hour workday, or you know you work 40 hours a week, or you, know, you track your time if you're a contractor maybe, and you send that to your employer. It allowed for people that probably led to some of the decrease in slavery and indentured servitude to all of a sudden you could form a contract around this measurable quantity. You could all of a sudden measure, you know, how much time I'm sacrificing eight hours of my day for someone. They know that, I know that, because we're able to track it with this clock. And so it opened up all these new business models, like potentially kind of like laid the groundwork for the industrial evolution. So if you think about the blockchain as a ledger or cryptocurrencies as being composed of all these ledgers, all of a sudden they let us track all these things, which we've just never been able to track before. So like one interesting one to me is the the Brave browser supported by the basic attention token, which is this idea that all of a sudden we can now measure attention, right? You can see how much attention you're giving to someone and that's quantifiable. And that's never really, there's never really been a technology, there's never been a way to, to quantify or track how much attention you're giving someone and then convert that into a, sort of like a you know, tradable resource. So yeah, this, I think for me, it was mostly just like, okay, let's start to think about, you know, yes, this is going to let us do, the blockchain is going to let us do a lot of things we're already doing in a more efficient way. And that's important. And that's going to make a big impact. But I think, you know, in 20 or 30 or 50 years, when we're looking back on this and saying, you know, what's the really, really big story, it's going to be the creation of these new business models that we didn't even know we didn't even know existed that probably, you know, no one or, you know, very, very few people alive right now have even imagined or possible.
I think that's spot on. It's worth noting that every single major internet company was created native to the internet. So Amazon, Facebook, Google, Twitter, Airbnb, like all of these companies were started after the birth of the internet. There hasn't, to my knowledge, been a single company that existed before the birth of the internet that ended up implementing a business model (laughs) that made it a, a significant player in the space right? Because they were all doing exactly what you described with newspapers. They were just creating online analogs to something that existed offline prior to that. And I think that's the number one mistake that people make when they're looking at blockchain use cases is they're looking for analogs of things that they like now. So they're looking for, you know, Amazon AWS on the blockchain and, Google cloud compute for the blockchain and, you know, what's AdWords for the blockchain. And perhaps they're missing the point. I believe that the most compelling use cases probably haven't reared their heads yet. And so if if you're looking for uh, analogs to things you know, in order to validate this new technology, you probably could be missing out on, you know, one of the biggest shifts in technology and, you know, in your lifetime. The number one mistake that I see investors make is they say, hey, until, until I see a functioning AWS for the blockchain, I'm not interested. Until I see blockchain use cases that look exactly like the startups that have made me money traditionally, I'm not going to invest. <laughs> There's a couple flaws with that. One flaw is sort of the the analog flaw, right? Looking for analogs of past things to understand current or future technologies. The second flaw in that thinking is that the value isn't likely to aggregate in these utility tokens, right? Like what's more valuable, the entire market cap of USD or gold or the market cap of Amazon Web Services or, or whatever fractional part of Amazon's total market cap that, that constitutes, right? USD is a much bigger deal. So if you're an investor looking at huge market, like what is the biggest market possible that I can invest in? Perhaps that is at the end of the day, USD or SDRs or you know some kind of financial instrument. And there's this long history of traditional things being digitized, hopping on the top of Moore's Law, and then going exponential. And I think that's what's happening here. I think you kind of alluded to this, but this idea that the protocols are going to be where all the value is accruing. It's been called this the fat protocol thesis. Another article in the newsletter was fat protocols are not an investment thesis that I think adds some more nuance to that. So if you're kind of on this, well, all the value is going to accrue to the utility tokens. And that's that's a big part of your thesis right now worth a read thinking about maybe how some of that value will accrue not just you know the further down the stack you go is better is probably a naive way of looking at it that's it for this week to sign up for our free crypto investing newsletter listen to other episodes or get the show notes for this episode please visit flippiting.com i also invite you to check out the startup that funds this podcast nomics spelled n-o-m-i-c-s 
at nomics.com. Finally, if you got value from this show, the biggest thing that you can do to repay us is to leave a five-star review with some comments and feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in the next episode.